Ready to get into the Word? Turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 50. We are going to finish Genesis this morning, which means we are going to get back into our true study, which is in Hebrews, also in Hebrews 11. Uh, but the main focus of thought is faith and what that means and how that is defined. And we will be processing through that together as we go through God's word. So let us pray. Heavenly Father, as we've just been singing, you are the one who we look to. You are the one that we trust. You are the one who has created us and saved us and called us and you speak to us and you lead us and you provide for us. You change us and transform us. You give us promises. And in this relationship that we have with you, Lord, we desperately need to see you. We need to hear you. We need to understand you. We need to know you. We need to obey you. And all of this, Lord, it's, it's wrapped up in this word faith. We believe in you, Jesus. We believe in who you are. We believe in what you've done. We believe in where you are right now, seated on that throne at the right hand of your Father and present in our midst. We believe that you're coming back. We believe that we're going to spend all eternity with you. We believe these things, Lord. We trust you. We hope in you. We are confident in you. And it is in your name, your character, your nature, your beauty, your holiness that we pray. Amen. Amen. So I want to start with a question. And the question that we'll use to frame this morning will continue and throughout as, as I'm talking and then really bookend. But ultimately, it's, it's who or what do you see? So when you sit in, this, in your circumstance in life, so whatever you may be struggling with, whatever you may be praising God for, whether this is a family relationship, a work relationship, a circumstance of life, in the midst of where you are right now, what is it that you see that captures your attention? Or who is it? Because ultimately, the, the answer is going to be, and the, the, the end here this morning is we need to see Jesus. But I ask this question because we need to define faith. For the last year, we've been sitting in Genesis. And we've been in Genesis because Hebrews 11, as it's talking about us as righteous ones, that we have faith in Jesus Christ, that we have been justified, that we are to walk in this life. Our behavior, our thoughts, our actions, our attitudes, that we are to walk by this word faith. And Hebrews 11 turns into a definition of faith, and then it takes us to the Old Testament and does a bunch of quick little teachings on examples of what faith is and what faith looks like. But here's my summing it all down of what faith is faith is sight. Your faith is who you see. And in the midst of your circumstances, in regards to your faith, the word of God, 
our God himself personally is continually saying, look at me. Because what's going on in the book of Hebrews is you have Jewish believers in Jesus Christ that have stopped thinking that Jesus is better than their religion, and they're turning back to religion. They're drifting away from the declarations that they believe in regards to who Jesus is and to what he's done, what he's going to do, what he is doing in their lives. And this is the same thing for all of our hearts. We drift. We have circumstances in life that all of a sudden our sight is on that and our sight is not on our Lord. And the reminder that we have continually is get your eyes on Jesus. As often as we come in here and we're worshiping together, why? Get your eyes on Jesus. Your mind, your heart, your mouth, your actions. Look to Jesus. See Jesus. As we open up the word week after week together, I don't want you to see me. I don't want you to see Calvary Chapel. I don't want you to see one another. I don't want you to see your problems. I don't want you to see the issues in this world. I want you to see Jesus. Because when you look at Jesus, then you're going to follow him. You're going to listen to him. You're going to submit to him. You're going to let him change you. You're going to let him speak to you. You're going to let him direct you. But if you're not looking at Jesus, none of that's going to happen. That's why daily in our prayer life, in our devotional life, in our service life, in your relationships, in your household, whatever life looks like for you, keep telling yourself, look at Jesus, trust Jesus. We just sang a song, Jesus, I'm looking at you, I believe That if you call me to, you will empower me to walk on water. I believe, Jesus, as I have faith in you and as I trust in you, you are infinite. You are without borders. You have limitless power. You are love. You are gracious. You are kind. I look to you. And as I look to you, I can deal with this circumstance. I can deal with my broken heart and submit this broken heart to you. As we sit in the text this morning, as I'm asking about who is it that you see and what is it that you see, we're talking about this idea of perspective. You and I have a very limited scope and perspective on what is true. It's very narrow. That's why we have to look at the one who is true. Because in that relationship that you're having a hard time with, you don't have their perspective. You don't have their mind, their heart, their life, their understanding, how they process through things. You're missing all these pieces in regards to them, and you only have your perspective, your sight. And this is the confession. We're limited. But when we look to Jesus, Jesus is unlimited. He has perfect clarity. He is true. He is right. He is holy. He is sovereign. So when we talk about this word faith, it always represents look at Jesus. Because we walk by faith and not by sight. We don't walk by the physical senses. We don't walk by this piece of meat that's in our skull. We are to walk by looking at Jesus in all things. So, 
As we close out Genesis here, we've been watching Jacob's faith and Joseph's faith. And Jacob has just died. Chapter 50, you have, then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. I was talking to Gordon this morning and just, you know, I, how I sit in this text is that amazing. I love Joseph because he was a 17-year-old young man who had, a, who had an incredible and unique relationship with his dad. And when he was sold into slavery, all of that hurt and all of that pain did not take the roots of bitterness and that shaking his fist in rebellion against God in his life. The God of his dad, the God of his grandpa, the God of his great-grandpa was his God as a 17-year-old young man. And he held on to he looked to God his entire life. I sit in this personally as having an 18-year-old daughter that we've just sent off to college. She's on her own. We have communication and relationship. But I have to trust that she's learned about the God of her mom and her dad. And that as she goes out on her own, she's going to be looking to Jesus. I'm sitting here trying to hold back tears in worship as I'm standing next to my 16-year-old son who's not just some stereotypical PK pastor's kid because dad and mom have him in a headlock. But I'm watching him come up here and take communion to see Jesus. I open my eyes and I've got my son kneeling on the ground next to me praying not to just the God of his father but praying to his God and his Savior, seeing Jesus. I've got my son standing next to me, raising up his hands in worship to God. That is thrilling to me. And not only do I like weep over that in my own children, I weep in that for you. We want you to see Jesus right where you are, in your circumstance, in your hardship, in your trial, in your joy. We want you to see Jesus. Joseph is a man who didn't know Jesus by name, but Joseph is a man who knew his God, and he looked into his God. And now, as his dad has passed away, you watch this, this, this unique and special relationship that is now gone because dad just died because of the effects of sin. Every single one of us faces that. Verse 2, Joseph commanded his servants and the physicians to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Forty days were required for him. For such are the days required for those who are embalmed. And there's all kinds of Egyptian religious things going on here. But to suck all the moisture out of dead bodies... It's about a 40-day process, and then it says the Egyptians mourned for him 70 days, so more likely 40 days for the embalming process, and this 30 days of mourning there giving Jacob a royal, uh, royal honors in regards to mourning his passing, verse 4. Now when the days of his mourning were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your eyes... Please speak in the hearing of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, Behold, I am dying. 
In my grave which I have dug for myself in the land of Canaan, there you shall bury me. Now therefore, please let me go up and bury my father, and I will come back. And Pharaoh said, Go up and bury your father as, as he made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father and went up with all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his house and the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as all the house of Joseph, his brothers, and his father's house. Only their little ones, their flocks and their herds, they left in the land of Goshen. And there, uh, and there went up with him both chariots and horsemen, and it was a very great gathering. A lot of the language, this conclusion of Jacob's life is burial. A lot of it is imagery and uh, relationship issues that we are just beginning to see between Egypt and the nation of Israel, the tribes that carry forward into the book of Exodus. Verse, six, uh, verse 10 says, then, then they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, and they mourned there with a great and very solemn lamentation. He observed seven days of mourning for his father, which still to this day in the, in the Jewish observant household, for the death of a close relative, a parent, a child, there's, there's a, a seven-day period of mourning uh, that they still hold on to traditionally. Verse 11, and when the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning at the threshing floor of Atad, they said, this is a deep mourning of the Egyptians. Therefore, its name was called Abel Mitzrim, which literally means mourning of Egypt, which is beyond the Jordan. So his sons did for him just as he commanded them. For his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field of Machpelah before Mamre, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite as property for a burial place. And after he buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt, he and his brothers, and all who went up with him to bury his father." And now, verse 15, it says, When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, Perhaps Joseph will hate us. Perhaps he's going to be hostile towards us. And may actually repay us for all the evil which we did to him. So they sent messengers to Joseph, saying, Before your father died, he commanded, saying, Thus you shall say to Joseph, I beg you, please forgive the trespass of your brothers and their sin, for they did evil to you. Now please forgive the trespass of the servants of the God of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. So here's the circumstances. We talk about sight. So the restraining force of dad, of Jacob has been removed. He just passed away. We see this often at the passing of a parent where the, the, those deep-seated sibling rivalries really come out. They start fighting over the inheritance and these are very common issues in the human hearts. But here you have Jacob passing, the one who the brothers are looking as though that Jacob is a restraining force in Joseph's life. That once dad is now removed from the scene, Joseph is going to repay us. So the question, again, getting back to perspective, and what are the brothers looking at? What do they see? Do they see truth, or do they see their own processes and imagination? Because ultimately what's going on here is their perspective of Joseph is not true. They think Joseph has just been withholding repayment for the evil that they did to him 
only to honor dad. And once dad's gone, true Joseph is going to come out. So their perspective, what they see in regards to Joseph is off. Their perspective, their sight, what they are looking at is the behavior that they performed decades ago. They're sitting in the guilt of it. They're sitting in the remorse of it. They've been processing with Joseph for 17 years now, living with him in the land, probably a distant relationship as the family is in Goshen and Joseph is fulfilling his responsibilities in his role there in Egypt. But they always have this question in the back of their mind in regards to the character and the nature of Joseph. Their perspective's wrong. They're not looking to God in faith. The evidence of that is they conspire again amongst themselves and let's lie to Joseph. Let's lie to Joseph to save our own skin. Joe, dad said before he died, forgive your brothers. So they begin the confession with a lie. But then you get their heart that comes out of it also. Because the truth is just, please, forgive the servants of the God of your father. So we are servants of God. They're, They're seizing upon God's name and his character for the restoration of relationship between brothers. Because I serve God, please forgive me. In this scene... The brothers didn't have the boldness, the courage to go and talk to Joseph on their own. Minds wrapped up in a lie, so they sent messengers. And Joseph's response to their asking of forgiveness is what? It's weeping. You don't understand me. You don't know who I am. You don't know what I believe. You're wrapped up in your own ideas of retribution. You're guilty. You're condemned in that guilt. You think that I ought to repay you, and that's not my heart. And look how Joseph responds to them. Then his brothers, they went and they fall down before his face, so now they're they're present before him, and they said, Behold, We are your servants. And Joseph said to them, listen to this, do not be afraid. For am I in the place of God? But as for you, you did, you meant evil against me. We've had these conversations. We've had the restoration. He should be pointing them back to, you know, almost 20 years before. But remember, and this is, this is the perspective of faith. So the boys, the brothers, theirs is, their perspective is not on God. Joseph's perspective from his upbringing throughout his years of being a slave in Egypt and everything that that looked like, his eyes and his attention, his perspective, his faith was on God. You meant it for evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. Now, therefore, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. And he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. That word kindly is literally... He spoke to their hearts. 
But what I want you to see in this is we're looking at Joseph as an example of faith, as an example of what it means to see God in all of the evil that his brothers did to him. By choice, he chose to keep his sights on his God. He chose to keep his eyes on what God was doing. Because ultimately, he knows Because his eyes are on God, that nobody can do anything to him at all unless it's been filtered through the hands of God. And as he's processed through this relationship with the Lord and his relationship with his family for decades, he's drawn to this conclusion. What you did to me, it was evil, and you meant for it to be evil. But that evil, God used for good. And look at God's heart. Ultimately, it wasn't just for Joseph's good. What was God's heart? So as we sit here and say, I want my eyes on Jesus. What was God's heart and what he was doing in the family of Jacob? Ultimately, it's what God is in the business of doing, which is to save many people alive. The famine was coming. And through sending Joseph ahead, he saved many alive. And it's not just for that family. Ultimately, it's to bring about Jesus. Ultimately, it's to save us alive for all eternity, to save many alive. And the promise of Joseph to his brothers, he will provide, he will comfort, he will speak to their hearts Hold your place here before, we're going we're gonna to wrap up Genesis in a minute, but I want you to turn to Deuteronomy chapter 6, because there are two places that I want you to have marked in your own Bibles, because as we turn our attention away from Old Testament and into New Testament and into New Covenant and why Jesus is better than the law, The New Testament, Jesus himself teaches us that there are two great commandments of the Old Testament where all of other God, all the other commandments of God hang upon these things. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, this is called the Shema, which means to hear. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. As we sit in this word faith this morning, this is what faith means. In your love, in your attention, in your sight on God, all of your heart, your desires, your lusts, your wants, your dreams, all of it, love God. All of your soul, this this being, what we are is our thought processes, our minds, our cognitive abilities, the knowledge that we have, the wisdom that we apply with all of your soul. Through sight on him, love God. With all of your strength, all of your physical ability, the, the lack of sleep, the whatever it looks like, the hardships that you have to go through with all that you are, love God. Now, how many of you are capable of obeying that? None of us. 
This is where sight on God is upon him. He is the one who strengthens us and enables us. So the first commandment there is in Deuteronomy 6. The second one is in sitting in Leviticus. So turn to Leviticus 19. Leviticus 19, 18. And this really is the one that sits in our context in regards to Joseph's relationship with his brothers and Joseph's response to his brothers. In Leviticus chapter 19, buried in all these ceremonial and moral laws, in verse 17 of chapter 19 of Leviticus, it says, You shall not hate your brother in your heart. You shall surely rebuke your neighbor and not bear sin because of him. Listen to, listen to sight in this. Don't hate people. But don't put up with their sin either. There's conversations need to occur. Verse 18 you shall not take vengeance, nor bear any grudge against the children of your people. Why is that a command? Because when somebody hurts us, we want to hurt them back extra bad. When somebody hurts our feelings, when somebody does something that they said that they were going to do and they don't do it, it's very easy for us to begin to bear, to have heaped upon our shoulders this burden of carrying a grudge. You shall not. Vengeance is of God. But what shall we do? What's the contrast? You shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And again, the contrast here, verse 17. You shall not hate your brother in your heart. But what shall we do? You shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am Yahweh. I am God. This is my heart. This is my command. I know that you're not capable of doing this on your own. I will enable you to do this. So as Joseph is sitting here in verse 19, don't be afraid. I'm not in the place of God. It's not my role to take vengeance upon you. You, brothers, look to God. Keep your eyes on him. I'm keeping my eyes on him. I will provide for you. I will comfort you. I will speak to your heart's truth. Verse 22, it says, So Joseph dwelt in Egypt. This is back in Genesis 50. He and his father's household, and Joseph lived 110 years. This is the ideal age we see from writings that still exist in regards to Egypt. Joseph saw Ephraim's children to the third generation. Listen to this, the children of Machir, the, ch the son of Manasseh, were also brought up on the knees of Joseph. So I want you to sit in this. This is kind of a side note here, but it's important because what's, um, what's being communicated to us is God is fulfilling his promise to make the children of Israel a multitude. Because you have the children of Machir, so Machir is the grand, wait a minute, let me, let me get all this, I'm gonna back, we're going to do the sentence from the end. So Joseph, right? Joseph has a son whose name is Manasseh, second generation, son. Machir is Joseph's grandson. Joseph lives long enough to see Machir's children, four generations, great-grandkids on his knees. What's important to point out here is when you sit in the Exodus, in chapter 6 in Exodus, and when you sit in the original promise that the nation of Egypt would be in or the nation of Israel would be in Egypt for four generations, what God initially said to Abraham in chapter 17. So 
Levi and Joseph are brothers, right? Same generations. Next generation is Kohath under Levi. Next generation after that is Amram. Next generation under that is Moses and Aaron. This is the population that is exploding. They are still going to sit in Egypt for an extended period of time. But when it mentions Makir's children, that Joseph saw them, Joseph has seen the generation that is going to carry his bones out of Egypt. And this is what he talks about in verse 24. And Joseph said to his brethren, I am dying. And I love this. Always circle this. But God, because again, this is I'm dying. Here's the consequence of sin in my life. I'm dying, but God will surely visit you. And this word, again, getting back to sight, it's literally God will look upon you. God will see you. And he will bring you out of this land to the land of which he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. That's the first time you see the the three names lumped together in the Bible. When we talk about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, here's that first mention in regards to these men, who God was to these men, and the promises that he gave to these men. And Joseph is faith, eyes on God. Joseph took an oath from the children of Israel saying, God will surely visit you. God will surely see you. He will surely look upon you. And he will surely, he shall carry, you shall carry uh, my bones from here. So Joseph died being 110 years old and they embalmed him and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. So, make your way to Hebrews 11. As we get, well, beginning of 11 because we got to start in chapter 10. But as Hebrews turned our attention to all of this testimony in Genesis, what does Genesis begin with? Genesis begins with, in the beginning, God. Get your attention on God, your sight on God, who he is and his power and his ability. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. How did he do it? Well, the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the deep, the face of the earth that he created. And he spoke the power of his word, the power of this being. What did he create? He created life. He created a system to be the dwelling of those that he chose to create in his image, male and female. So in the beginning of Genesis, we have this incredible declaration of who God is. What do we have at the end of Genesis? Bones in a box. It's the miserable testimony of sin. It's the miserable testimony of our lives. You were born. You were living your life. You will be bones in a box. So what's the point of all this? Where's your sight? Depends on how you answer what's the point. Because the point is, God created us to be in his image, to have relationship. In his sovereignty, in his choice, he made us to be like him. But we're broken. We sin. The sin is disobedience. It's rebellion. Choice to say no to God and do what you want to do. Choice to put your eyes anywhere else but upon God in your life. 
And we do it every single day to one degree to another, every single one of us. The wages of sin, the consequences of sin is death. In the day that you disobey me, in the day that you eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. So the testimony of Genesis is death after death after death after death, bones in a box. Is the God of Genesis 1 the God of Genesis 50? Same God. Did God change? Not one bit. So the consistent testimony is he has been interacting with his creation. His continual revelation of here is life apart from me, which is death. Here is what rebellion leads to. Here's what wickedness and the evil imagination and the violence of mankind, what it brings about in life. But here's who I am. Here's my promises. The promise at the end of Genesis is the promise of redemption. God sees you and he will come and deliver you. The testimony of Exodus is this whole picture of being delivered and freed from our sin by his miracle, by his wonders, by his work. And ultimately, it's pointing us to his son on the cross. I am coming to redeem you, to buy you, to give you my life for all eternity. So this is the message that we've responded to. This is the person that we've responded to. Now, for us in this room, we have a spectrum of believers. We have some of you may have not stepped over that threshold and looked to Jesus Christ in faith yet. And we have everything in between that all the way up to you have looked at Jesus for your entire life. And in that spectrum, what happens all of you that have been walking and following Jesus for any length of time, in the beginning, it's usually really exciting, but what happens? Life happens. Expectations are met. Jesus hasn't come back yet. How many of you were waiting for the rapture like the second that you got saved and people are telling, Jesus is coming back. You better give your life to Christ. He's coming back. He is. He's coming back. But in your expectations of what he was going to do and when he was going to do it, has God failed you, quote, unquote? Has he failed to meet your expectations? Have you drifted at all in that relationship? Does church get boring? Do all these Christians just begin to weird you out? Is it funner to sit there and uh, have a theological conversation than it is to actually spend some time in conversation with God? Is worship just the thing that we do before we open the Bible? This is what Hebrews is dealing with. Hebrews is dealing with the drifting heart. And the bookend of Hebrews 10 and Hebrews 12 is the conversation of endurance. And the conversation of endurance revolves around this definition of, well, what is faith? In chapter 11, it's faith is the substance of things hoped for. It's what we see. And it's not really what, it's who we see. 
This is when, so when we make, the, when we say the word faith, when we say the word trust, when we say the word hope, when we say these, the confident assurance and, and all these different, it's all wrapped up in who we're looking at. It's never a, a, just a definition and dry and bland. Whenever we talk about faith, it's always the object of faith that we're talking about. And here, verse uh, chapter 10 Let's see, verse 34, it says, You had compassion on me and my chains and joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods, knowing that you have a better and an enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. Therefore, do not cast away your confidence, which has great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. Chapter 12 is going to tell us, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, who is the author and the finisher of our what? Our faith. Chapter, 30, or chapter 10, verse 37, yet a little while, he who is coming, he will come and he won't tarry. Jesus is coming. But the justified ones, the righteous ones, you and I looking to Jesus shall live by faith. We shall live by our sight on him, not our physical sight on the things of this world and our circumstances and our own failures and our own thorns and our own weaknesses. It's get your eyes on Jesus because faith is a substance. It's real. It's true. It's the substance of things that we hope for, the evidence of things that we don't see. By it, the elders, the people in the Old Testament that we read about, that we've just spent a year studying, they received, they obtained this good testimony. By faith, we understand that God is the one who created the worlds by his word. And then in this, this is, we're going to read through this quickly, but it's the same thing said over and over again using different people as examples to teach the same thing. By faith, this noun, this thing, this sight on God, people did something, faith in action. By faith, Abel, what did Abel do? He offered to God. By faith, Enoch was taken away. Why was he taken away? Because Enoch pleased God. By faith, Noah, what did Noah do? Noah moved with godly fear and he built an ark because God told him to. That was big faith. Side note, and this is for future as we finish out, uh, as we finish out Hebrews. The only time the word grace is mentioned in Genesis is when Noah finds grace in the sight of the Lord. Grace is very rare in the Old Testament by word and it explodes in the New Testament because of who God is and what he's done. By faith, Abraham, verse eight, he obeyed, he did something. His sight on his God had an effect in his life is what this is saying over and over again. By faith, he dwelt in the land of promise, verse nine. Verse 11, by faith, Sarah herself, she received strength. Wasn't that she made herself strong, God enabled her, her womb, her dead womb to conceive. Verse 13, these all died in faith, not having received the promises, but what are they doing? Having seen them. And again, it's not our, our eyes and our attention and the, the hope. It's not on the things and the stuff and just the promises. It's on the promisor, the one who has spoken all of this. We have seen him. 
We're assured of them. We've embraced them, confessed them, declared them. We seek them. We desire them. Verse 17, by faith, Abraham, he was tested. His faith was tested. What did he do? He offered up his son, believing in the resurrection, that God was capable of resurrecting his son from the dead if he actually sacrificed him. Verse 20, by faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau. Last week, we looked at verse 21. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, he blessed each one of the sons of Joseph. So there in chapter 49. In 50, we just looked at this in Genesis, verse 22, by faith, this is what, all of Joseph's life, this is what the Holy Spirit put upon the heart of the writer of Hebrews to write down in regards to Joseph's faith. By faith, Joseph, when he was dying, he made mention of the departure of the children of Israel and gave instruction concerning his bones. By faith, Moses When he was born, he was hidden for three months. It wasn't his faith, it was his parents' faith because they saw he was a beautiful child. Ugly kids, they just threw into the river. Cute kids, they kept. That's not true, just making sure that you're all still awake. They were not afraid of the king's command. By faith, Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction. So forget the Ten Commandments movie that you've watched and stick with the word of God. Choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater greater riches than the treasures in Egypt. Look at this. He looked to the reward. The reward is Jesus himself. By faith, he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith, he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood, lest he who destroyed the firstborn should touch them. By faith, they passed through the Red Sea as by dry land, whereas the Egyptians, attempting to do so, were drowned. Now, we could go sit in Exodus, but we're not going to. I'd encourage you to go read through beginning in Exodus, because this is all the testimony in regards to Moses' faith and what was going going on here's his sight on God and here's the actions that he took in his life as he was following God now there's a gap here between 29 and 30 in the in the narrative of the Old Testament and the narrative gap is dealing with the unfaithful wilderness generation so as this is talking about people whose sight is on God the unfaithful generation that died in the wilderness they weren't looking at God They were looking at the giants in the land. They were looking at the circumstances. They were complaining. They were bitter and they died in the wilderness. And Hebrews has already addressed that unfaithful generation. So therefore it skips them and jumps into the book of Joshua in verse 30. By faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they were encircled for seven days. By faith the harlot Rahab did not perish with those who did not believe. Literally those who were disobedient. And when she had received the spies with peace and what more shall I say for the time would fail me and the time is failing us of Gideon of Barak and Samson and Jephthah also David and Samuel and the prophets listen to this who through faith we're going to give two contrasts not two contrasts but examples of faith and the examples of faith are this there are times in our life when we are looking to Jesus that he gives us victory over our circumstances we win the battle the, the temptation is gone, the trial is gone, the provision is made, everything is now, we know you have that spiritual high top and everything's wonder and beautiful. So that's one example that's being given. And the other example is through faith, looking unto Jesus, he is the one who gives us victory under our circumstances. 
where some people he delivers from death, other people he turns over to death. Same God, same faith, same attention. It's his plan and it's his purpose. He gives us victory over our circumstances and he gives us victory under our circumstances. And here's the examples. Verse 33, who through faith, look what they did. They, your faith can subdue kingdoms in God's will. Your faith can work righteousness in your life and in the lives of others. Your faith in Jesus Christ can obtain the promises. Their faith stopped the mouths of lions, Daniel. Their faith quenched the violence of fire, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Faith, through faith, through attention on God, through following him, through sight on God, they escaped the edge of the sword. Out of weakness, they were made strong. They became valiant in battle. They turned to flight the armies of the aliens. Women received their dead, raised to life again, both in Elijah's life and Elisha's life. Victory over circumstances. Now others, others, they were beaten with sticks. They were tortured not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain, look at this, a better resurrection. What's a better resurrection? Every single human being will become bones in a box. Every single human being will be resurrected. Some are resurrected to eternal departure from God, which is defined as hell, and others are resurrected to eternal life in God's presence, the one who has created us. The better resurrection is what's being preached. Willing to lose life for God to obtain better resurrection, not to turn on him. Still others had trial of mockings and scourgings, yes, and of chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. Testimony tells us that the prophet Isaiah was sawn in two, alive with a wooden saw. Ouch. Did God love him? Was God right there with him? Did God give him victory under his circumstances as he kept his eyes on God? Absolutely. They were tempted, slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. And all these, look at this, having obtained a good testimony through faith, they didn't receive the promise. God having provided something better for us that they should not be, be made perfect apart from us. God's plan, past saints, present saints, future saints, should he tarry, will all be resurrected into life, into his presence for all eternity together with new bodies in the new heaven and the new earth. Go read the end of Revelation. So when we talk about faith, our faith revolves around where our attention is, what you see, choosing to ignore your own eyes, which will lie to you, choosing to believe his promises 
to believe his nature, his character, to believe the testimony of the past so that we can believe in him today and trust in him today and look to him today and for all eternity. So when we talk about faith, we're talking about Jesus. When When we talk about nothing is impossible in Jesus Christ, it's because he is without bounds. The one who is without bounds created you and loves you. He died for you. He became like you. He rose again from the dead. He is seated at the right hand of the Father right now, speaking to you right now personally and corporately. Look at me. When you go home today, look at Jesus. When you get in your next fight, choose to look at Jesus. When you don't want to get out of bed, look at Jesus. When you want to do your own thing, Look at Jesus. When God bores you, look at Jesus. When you're bored in life, don't go seeking entertainment, amusement, not to think. Look at Jesus. When you need wisdom, discernment, provision, comfort, a hug, someone to dance with, Look at Jesus. He's present. That's his promise. And through looking to him, having faith in him, trusting him, all of these words, you are guaranteed to have life now, abundant life now, and for all eternity. Worship team, come on up. Heavenly Father, we do. We love you tremendously, and our attention is on you and on you alone. You are the great God who created the heavens and the earth. You are the great God who called Abraham. You singled out a man to reveal yourself to, to give promises to, so that he would teach his children, Lord, so that he would do righteousness, so that he would do justice, not in his own strength, in his own effort, but trusting in you. You were gracious to him. You were kind to him. And Lord, it says we look at all the different men and women on the pages of your word that you preserve for us. We see their faith in you. And ultimately, Lord, that helps us to see you. What did Jonah see when he was in the midst of a, the gut of a fish? What did Elijah see as he was running for his life? What did David see when he was confronted with his sin? What did Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego see as you were with them in that furnace? What did Jesus see? when he asked why you were forsaking him? What did Jesus see when he asked you to forgive those who crucified him, who were mocking him? What do you see when you look at us, Lord, when you visit us, when you attend to us? 
We're asking you, Lord, through your power, the power that created the heavens and the earth, the power that rose your son from the dead, that you would empower us to see you in all things at all times for all eternity. God help us.